Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. I'm uh, here with you every Thursday from 1 to 2 Mountain and online at drpegradio.com. And we're talking about mental health, wellness, and safety every week. Now, last week was the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, where 168 people were killed and almost 700 injured. And just days ago, 10 were killed in a van attack in Toronto. Now, some consider terrorism psychological warfare and there are a variety of harmful psychological impacts of terrorism. And so to help us understand the psychological impact of terrorism and how crisis incident stress management can help in recovery, my guest today is retired police lieutenant and paramedic Tom Greenhall. And we'll hear from Tom in just a moment. But first, we're brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training and has the only program of its kind with an accredited CEU. To learn more about SSI Guardian, go to ssiguardian.com and tell them you heard about them from Dr. Pegg. And if you missed last week's episode, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And you can also purchase a copy of the 10th anniversary edition of my book, Do Something Different for Change, or my book, Doggy Tales, just by going to drpegradio.com slash books. Well, as I said, it's been 23 years since the Oklahoma City bombing on April 19, 1995, and we've had numerous other terror attacks in the U.S. since then, 9-11, uh, uh, the Atlanta Olympics, Boston Marathon, and Pulse Nightclub. Uh, but what about other acts of violence that some would argue are terrorism, but are not always officially considered as terror attacks? And how exactly do we define terrorism, and what's the psychological toll that terrorism takes on its victims? To help us answer these questions and explore the topic of terrorism, my guest today is Tom Greenhall, and Tom has been involved in the public safety field for 35 years and is a retired police lieutenant who's previously worked as a firefighter and paramedic. He's also been involved in public safety diving for over 20 years as a team leader and trainer of dive rescue teams. And Tom also serves on the faculty of the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, and he's the co-director for the Greater Lowell Critical Incident Stress Management Team in Massachusetts. Tom Greenhall, thanks so much for being with me today. Welcome to the program. Hi, Peg. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the offer and uh, glad to help out in any way I can. Yeah, thank you so much. I took uh, your class um, with the ICISF, International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, on the psychological impact of terrorism and interventions that we can use with survivors. And that's how we met. And I just, Tom, uh, was just blown away. Uh, you pulled back the curtain and really gave us a peek into the mind and philosophy behind terrorism. And uh, to be honest, it really was not a pretty picture. No, it's not. And unfortunately, you know, in society, most people don't want to know the down and dirty of what's out there. And for the most part, a lot of times people don't need to know all that because they would live in fear, and it's just not fear for them in terms of trying to live their life with a sense of safety and purpose. They can be very disruptive, which is the goal of terrorism. Yeah, exactly. 
And so that really, that, that's their weapon is um, instilling fear in us. And so we really have to find a balance between being informed, but really not being paralyzed by that fear. That's correct. And uh, as we go through, like as you said in the training for the two days, um, for those that don't know, that's to train people that are going to respond to serve those impacted by a terrorist event. So obviously you have to have a higher level of insight and knowledge as to what's going on so that you can appropriately plan your response and make that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, today's show was inspired by the fact that it's been 23 years since the Oklahoma City bombing on April 19th, 1995. And that seems like such a long time ago. And, you know, I have uh, 23-year-old twins. And so um, their peers may not even know about the Oklahoma City bombing, may not remember it, or may not know much about it. It may not seem so relevant or current. Uh, but we just had a terror attack in Toronto. And so terrorism really isn't going away, is it? No, and unfortunately, it was in existence long before Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. I know when I started on the job 35 years ago, for me, terrorism was something that I heard about from overseas. It wasn't something that I would find here in the U.S. At least that was my belief. And for many in my fields, that was everyone's belief. It wasn't until we started seeing things like World Trade Center 1, Oklahoma City, and such that all of a sudden it became real. And for many, it didn't become truly real until 9-11. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you, you give a list of some of those um, incidents that stand out in my memory. Um, 9-11, of course. Um, you know, people ask each other, where were you? Do you remember what you were doing when you heard the news? I remember I was uh, driving uh, to get to the trail where I used to walk with a friend of mine every morning and had the radio on, and that's how I learned the news. Um, the Atlanta Olympics. Um, uh, it w- is another uh, uh, terror attack in the U.S. Uh, the Unabomber, um, and of course the Boston Marathon, which um, you'll share later a little bit about the um, work that you did in the recovery efforts as uh, a leader of the critical incident stress management team in Massachusetts. Um, so this list, um, you know, we just had a truck attack on a bike path in New York City. I, I could go on. Um, th- so it's it's happening uh, overseas, as you mentioned, and, and as well here. Uh, One thing I want us to talk about today, Tom, because I think there's so many different thoughts about even how to define terrorism, um, is for us to talk about uh, the definition. Um, There's there's not just one definition, and that does bring in some confusion and even some debate. Uh, The language often gets politicized. Uh, I read a quote saying, uh, it's not that we don't have a definition of terrorism, it's that we have too many definitions. Uh, so what, what's your working definition uh, that you teach in, in your classes with ICISF and what informs your work in recovery? Well, as we go through it, I try to share the various definitions to your point that there really are too many of them. Um, it's very hard to combat something if we can't even agree as to what it is. Mm-hmm. So most people rely on the FBI definition, which uh, verbatim is the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. So it's a pretty broad definition in a sense, but it gives a good comprehensive overview of what the terrorist organizations are trying to accomplish. So it's a piece of working definition. Mm-hmm. And so those, those weapons that we talk about that certainly do have a psychological impact on our collective psyche are the intimidation and the coercion. 
um, and instilling a fear, uh, and it's to, to um, advance a political or social agenda. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, some of those strategies uh, that would be used um, to intimidate and um, instill fear. Okay. So there's multiple types. Um, what we use in the public safety world is the acronym for CBRNA, which really talks about the different types of events or different methods, rather, that could be used to implement this fear in, into people. So typically they look at weapons of mass destruction is what most people think. And as you look on TV, you hear those, when you watch the TV shows that talk about terrorism in a, you know, like, oh, a CSI-type program or the old one, 24, where they were always fighting terrorists every minute mm -hmm. of the day. Um, it doesn't have to be that grand a thing. It can be simply a single person in an action, as you remember perhaps back from England, when they beheaded the person in a public venue. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be that very large-scale attack to create the fear that they're trying to get into the society. So within that, the different ones that may show up, we see things like chemical weaponry, mm -hmm. biological agents. It could be radiological, some sort of nuclear attack. And then, of course, explosives, which, at least overseas right now, that is the method of choice that's being used over in Iraq, Afghanistan, the IED. That has made its way stateside, unfortunately, here. And so when we see um, vehicles, for example, being used as a weapon, are they always um, equipped with explosives, or would the, the vehicle itself just be the weapon? It, what would be common there? Many layers. They, every time that the public safety realm starts to figure out and come up with the defense mechanism, they go and they come up with a new method. Just like in public safety, how after we respond to an event, we do after action, i.e. we look at what we've done and what can we improve, set up the terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. They do the same thing. So they're always learning from what they've accomplished and the mistakes they made along their pathway to get better at it the next time out. Mm -hmm. So to your example of a vehicle, it could be the vehicle itself being driven into the crowd. The vehicle could be carrying some sort of explosive device or the the explosive device could be on the driver themselves. The vehicle is just a means to get that person closer to their target. Now, in terms of Oklahoma City, um, back in 1995, um, they erected barriers, uh, truck-resistant barriers, and, and we'll notice those in different venues. Even, I imagine, a store like Target that has the big, giant red balls um, I don't know that that's just for <laughs> decoration and to be unique, but it, it's certainly a protective barrier. So as we see one tactic or strategy and one use of a vehicle, for example, you'll see a response to that. Um, after Oklahoma City, all new federal buildings have to be constructed with truck-resistant barriers and, and be set back from the street uh, to minimize vulnerability specifically to truck bombs. Uh, yet we still see these kinds of attacks um, now occurring, you know, in more open public spaces like the, the bike path in New York City recently. Right, and again, think about the methodology to a terrorist attack that they're trying to accomplish is that sense of fear. Mm -hmm. They want to disrupt our normal life somehow. Mm -hmm. And if I can't get to the government building or to the major shopping centers because of these concrete barriers, if I run down the sidewalk at random, 
at least from my perspective, it's random, and they kill or injure significant numbers of people, would that not be disruptive to our society? Because you're always looking over your shoulder now when you walk down the street. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think, you know, that tactic is interesting because I recall here in Denver, we had um, uh, in the summer of 2012, there was a police officer, Officer Selena Hollis, was killed in one of our city parks at a jazz festival. And uh, I remember following that incident, the kind of the inclination to just want to stay home. Is it safe to go out? And then uh, about a month later, we had the Aurora Theater shooting that very same summer. I mentioned I have uh, 23-year-old twins. Well, they were high school seniors at the time, getting ready to go off to college. And my inclination was to just keep them home, not let them out of the house for the rest of the summer until I got them safely to their college dorms. Uh, So it's easy to see how these tactics can really, as you're saying, affect our entire way of life. Um, And one of the things I learned in in your class, Tom, was that um, the whole purpose is to cause us or a a society or a a, a government to capitulate to whatever it is that that they're they're believing. And so how effective are, are these strategies of terror? So far, we've been fortunate that they've underestimated the resiliency of the American population. Um, some of the tactics that they've utilized on us have been very severe, obviously, and have caused tremendous damage and fear. However, as a country, we seem to be able to rise above it. And therefore, from that perspective, they're not winning. All right. That's a good thing for us. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about um, domestic terrorism. And uh, I'm speaking with Tom Greenhall, who is an expert in terrorism and critical incident stress management, retired police lieutenant and um, firefighter paramedic. Uh, If you want to ask Tom a question, you can give us a call today. He's live with me by phone from Massachusetts. We're at 303-477-5600. Uh, so in terms of domestic terrorism, Tom, um, violent acts against certain groups here in the U.S., um, uh, some people have um, had a broader definition or idea about domestic terrorism. I've, I've read a lot about um, folks who considered the uh, Emanuel AME church shooting in South Carolina. Many felt that was an act of terrorism, but in fact, the government categorized it as a hate crime. Um, similarly, Fort Hood was considered by many a terrorist act, but the assailant was not charged with terrorism. So how how can we understand um, domestic terrorism, especially in light of all the varying definitions of, um, of terror attacks uh, that are coming from outside of the country? Okay, so the true answer to that, it's really about motive behind the attack is how they separate the two. On a more societal level, I've heard over the years many times a terrorist could be a group of kids hanging around the street corner causing disruption in the neighborhood. You know, in my job, we'll, we'll get a call from maybe an elder saying these kids are terrorizing my life. Mm. And for them, that's true, you know, because it is inducing fear to their world. But from a more legal and uh, accurate definition, it's based on what is the motivation behind it. Mm-hmm. So as an example, you raise the question of hate crime. So when we have hate crimes there's a bias to some sort of group. And that's typically based on race, religion, ethnicity, uh, maybe national origin, sexual orientation, or even disability. And really a hate crime is a standard crime, but it has this enhancement to it. 
So you may have an assault battery on someone, which is a very common crime. Someone strikes you or hits you in some way. But if it's based on one of those ethnic or religious beliefs, and that's why you've been targeted, that's what kicks it up to being a hate crime. Now, that's different than terrorism. In terrorism, although those groups may be impacted and may be impacted directly, the motive behind it is not because of who they are, but they're trying to use that group to further their personal agenda, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. That does make sense, and and that's helpful because we we end up again getting into debates about uh, the categorization of it. And and, um, I've read some things that, that really say it's helpful to consider the definition, um, even looking at terrorism as a tactic versus a legal term and when what charges can be brought and successfully won, um, as opposed to um, our, 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 our emotional reaction to it. But we're looking at it from the point of view of the actual assailants, the actual terrorists themselves, what were their motives, rather than how do we perceive it as onlookers or even victims. Correct. Okay. Well, we're going to be taking a break here in just a moment. I'm speaking with Tom Greenhall, who's a retired police lieutenant and fire, firefighter paramedic and an expert in terrorism and in particular the psychological impact of terrorism and what we can do to recover from a terrorist act. Tom leads uh, and does a lot of training on critical incident stress management. So when we return from our break, we'll learn more about the psychological impacts of terrorism and what can be done to help folks to recover. Stay with us. We'll be back. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. You can learn a lot about yourself and God from a dog. When her children asked for a dog, this mom got them gerbils. So imagine their surprise and hers when she adopted an abandoned dog that she met in Dallas, Texas, just one day after her divorce. In a way that only God could orchestrate, her spur of the moment decision to take in a little dog she named Dallas was just the beginning of a seven year journey that transformed her life and taught her to see herself and God in a whole new light. Read Doggy Tales, lessons on life, love and loss I learned from my dog, a delightful and heartwarming book by psychologist, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Part memoir, part Christian inspiration, Doggy Tales is a must read for anyone who wants to learn to recognize God's voice, even in the most unlikely places. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll love Doggy Tales. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com.
Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and my guest today is Tom Greenhall, and he's a retired police lieutenant and paramedic firefighter who's an expert on the psychological impact of terrorism and critical incident stress management. Tom Greenhall, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you, Peg. I appreciate you having me and being able to help out in this uh, very timely and important topic. Absolutely. Tom, how can listeners con connect with you if they want to learn more about your work or even take one of your classes? Uh, at this point, the simplest way would be to email me, and that, I believe you're giving that at the end of the show. Um, that would be the fastest way to get a hold of me as I travel frequently. So okay, great. Best. Well, I will um, have a link to you, Tom, on my website, drpegradio.com. So listeners, if you'd like to share this interview with a friend or if you missed another episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, you can check out the program archives. Again, that's drpegradio.com. If you'd like to join the conversation or ask Tom a question today about terrorism, the psychological impact of terrorism, and we're also going to get into critical incident stress management, you can give us a call. We're at 303 477 5600. So, Tom, I want to talk a little bit about what differentiates uh, terrorism uh, from other types of disasters so we can look at the psychological impact specifically of terrorism. So, in terms of things like a hurricane or uh, wildfires or even a plane crash, we saw that recently with, um, you know, Southwest had this emergency landing and uh, wildfires in Colorado and California are, are kind of a expected thing, hurricanes during hurricane season. How are the characteristics of terrorism uh, different? How, how, how can we differentiate uh, that type of um, disaster from other types of disasters? The main difference is in the foreknowledge that it's going to come. Okay. When you look at disasters, short of an earthquake, there usually is some sort of warning phase to that. Mm -hmm. you know, you're watching the weather report and they're saying we have storms anticipate the next couple of days, be careful of hurricanes tonight, those types of things. Earthquake is the only one that really doesn't have that forewarning timeline. It's pretty rapid onset. Much like the terrorist event, you know, there's a forewarning knowing that people are targeting groups as best they can share that information. But for the most part, it's a sudden, impactful event that people can't prepare for in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the most striking difference between the two because it violates a person's sense of safety and control. Mm -hmm. And there, there's even that, I would imagine, that notion of, you know, your, our insurance calls it acts of God. You know, it's kind of like this is part of being human and just being alive. There's going to be earthquakes and hurricanes. Um, but the fact that a terror attack is an intentional um, attack on folks and, and destruction and death, uh, is there something about that that also makes it uh, different in terms of uh, a crisis response? Absolutely. We have what we call world beliefs that every person carries with them. The certain rules, if you will, of life that we all have, and one of them is that the world should be fair and just. It should be relatively safe. All these things that we talk about in the American dream. And when you have a terrorist attack, it goes right to the heart of that because it violates those world core beliefs that we carry. How can another person do this to others who've done nothing? Mm -hmm. They're simply a pawn in their game, so to speak. And so for the person trying to come to grips with that type of event, it's very challenging because it's challenging them at a core level. It's not just the event itself. 
Mm -hmm. Now, I imagine also, depending on the nature of the attack and even just the number of um, those killed and injured, um, just kind of the scope of, of um, the devastation, the duration, um, you know, we saw with 9-11, the recovery efforts, um, you know, took so long, uh, but even as the event unfolded that morning with the first tower in the Pentagon and, and all of that going on, it kind of, um, the duration of the event, I imagine, depends on the nature of the attack, but that might be very different uh, than a, a tornado that kind of blows through a town and boom, it's it's over in a couple of minutes. Right, and the other aspect of that that you're mentioning would be containment of the event. So, as an example, the you know the hurricane strikes an area or a tornado strikes an area, but if we had as as an example a biological terrorist attack where someone's exposed to some sort of viral agent, that could very easily ripple throughout a wide geographic area before anyone even caught on mm. that was happening. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that, that, that psychological impact. Um, uh, there's something known as the, the walking worried uh, in the example that you're giving of a biological uh, weapon before people even know they've been exposed, they've been exposed. Uh, and so there's a psychological impact of the just not knowing. Uh, certainly if a truck... Um, you know, mows people down on a bike path, we know we've been attacked. Uh, but talk about the, the psychological effect of terrorism in addition to the fear and the terror that, that is by design, that's what it's about. How else does it affect us and how does that vary depending on the nature of the attack? Sure. What we use as a general rule is that for, there's about a one out of five ratio. So one out of a group of five people, one person will be physically impacted, four others will be psychologically impacted. Mm. So it's the 20%, 80% pool. And those psychological impacts can be across the spectrum of very mild to very severe. If someone was directly involved and witnessed the event, they may have more severe symptoms. But someone that hasn't just hears about it on the news repeatedly, after a while it just instills a fear of folks. And so that same that impact level can start to creep up in them, if you will, as far as how much it is interfering with their world and their life. Mm -hmm. I had a student, Tom, uh, years ago after um, the terror attacks of 9-11. Um, she eventually just kind of dropped out of class, and I didn't know what happened to her. And I happened to run into her um, a semester later, and she said she had previously been a victim of rape and had been treated for PTSD and had been doing better, but witnessing or viewing, I should say, um, the media coverage of the plane crashing into the tower over and over again, she said actually re-traumatized her. Totally different scenario. Um, she was raped initially, and now she's um, not even in New York. Uh, she's watching it on television, and it traumatized her. So it seems like the psychological impact, um, it's almost like a ripple effect. Those who are directly affected, um, who survive or the loved ones of those folks or people in the vicinity, but then there's this whole ripple effect outward of people even just watching it um, on the news media. There is, and in, in the case that you described there, one of the commonalities between the two stories, obviously, is that sense of safety and security has been violated. Mm. And so that can open that door back up to a prior event. And that's one of the risk factors that we see in people when exposed to a terrorist event 
what is their predisposition to managing stress? Do they have a lot of stuff going on in their world? Do they have support systems? You know, where are they in their personal lives? Because this is just another rock in the backpack, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so are we... Are we talking about things like PTSD? Um, I know that um, we wouldn't diagnose PTSD until four weeks after, um, but what kinds of um, effects are you talking about when when you're saying who's most at risk, and in particular folks who've who've experienced a trauma before? What would be some of the observable signs that uh, a loved one or a coworker could observe to see that this person isn't coping well? Sure. Well, let me talk briefly, if I could, about since you write the University of Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. the National Center for PTSD, the, the studies are showing just for the Oklahoma City bombing that about a third of the people who survived had PTSD diagnosis afterwards. Mm. When they looked at the kids two years after the bombing, about 16% of the children and adolescents who lived about 100 miles from Oklahoma City reported PTSD symptoms. Wow. So that just shows, as you put it, the ripple effect. It can be a wide range. It depends on how the person will handle stress. Some people get quiet and reserved and just kind of shut out the world and go into their own head and try to manage it. Other people become very openly expressive, maybe uncharacteristically so. It can be generalized anxiety. If they just can't settle down, sleep disturbances are not uncommon. Uh, relationship challenges start to surface. And these are just in the civilian population, that's not even talking about the responders to the scene who tend to get a little bit more graphic um, impact from the event, if you mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll talk about the um, first responders. I want to get into that more depth. But um, So talk to me a little bit about um, the impact on children, as you're, you talked about one study that showed even children who lived um, away from the actual bombing were being affected. Um, There, in fact, was a a daycare center in that building, and 19 of the victims had been babies and children. And we all know that iconic photo. I have it on my Facebook page of the firefighter carrying the, um, you know, bloodied um, baby or or toddler, looked to be about a year old uh, child. Uh, so talk about especially the impact on children and how their needs might be different or their response might be different. Sure. So when we look at kids, we kind of look at three groups that we expect could be impacted. So those that actually be a witness to the event were unseen, those who maybe lose a loved one as a result of that event, or those who just watch it on TV or hearing it from their friends. Uh, other things, you know, how long were they exposed to the event? Was a quick or was it a prolonged, such as in Oklahoma City, that perhaps they were rescued, but they were trapped for hours mm-hmm. and they were trying to work themselves out? Um, what type of physical injury did they sustain? There's a correlation, more injury. A lot of times there's more psychological impact, particularly if there's a loss of limb attached to it, things like that. Mm. Um, other things for the kids that we worry about is what's the family structure? Is the life for that child when they go home, is it stable and serene? Or is it very chaotic, disruptive, because that's going to impact their coping ability? And so anytime we see, it's just a balancing act, if you will, that if their home life is good and their social network is strong, people tend to do a little bit better. If those things are lacking, then they're in a higher risk category. And so that's what we're looking at for them all the time is 
what else is going on in their world. Mm-hmm. And that's so true with, with anything um, having to do with our mental health and well-being is the more support we have and, and um, a, a healthy family dynamic, we can be more resilient when, when things do happen. Um, so many of the children who were victims in Oklahoma City, and we're discussing that even though it's been 23 years, the anniversary was this month, many children actually lost parents in the blast, um, even, even um, possibly both parents, or maybe they already only had one parent who was killed and now they were orphans. And so we can uh, see how, as you're saying, they're, depending on the nature of the event and then how they are affected by it, what kind of exposure, what are the uh, secondary losses, as we call it, that, that impact them as well. Right. It's, it's, there's no cookie-cutter answer, unfortunately, mm-hmm. for these questions. And that's what causes some of the challenge in trying to respond to these events. Mm-hmm. It would be awesome if we could pull out the flow chart and say, if you see this, do this, but it doesn't quite work that way. Everyone's an individual. We have to treat them as best we can within the group need. Right, right. And I, I mentioned earlier a phrase I came across in, in preparing for this interview, something called the walking worried uh, symptoms among those not actually exposed to the attack. So we're kind of talking about it in terms of, uh, you said, uh, those who were on scene versus those who lost a loved one versus those who are watching it on television. But there still is almost kind of a, what if I was exposed, regardless of how close I was or how far away, especially in the case of a biological agent. Um, you were involved uh, or aware of some information surrounding a, um, an anthrax drill in 2015. Can you talk about that as it pertains to these walking worried? Absolutely. In uh, 2005, in my area back here in Massachusetts, we had a federal drill to test the response to a terrorist incident. And within 15 minutes, in three communities, we had anthrax dropped on a baseball field. It was The game was going on, a uh, major gas line explosion, and then the nuclear medical place, there was um, people that came in and took hostages. So it was a pretty chaotic 15 minutes, so to speak. And on the next day, our team was tasked with helping at the dispensary site in response to the anthrax exposure. And as part of the drill, we brought in college students to act as the victims so that we could test the system. And they all knew that it was a drill. There was no real incident there. But during the course of the role play during the day, we actually had to take one of those students out in an ambulance because they had convinced themselves because of the realism of the play that they had, in fact, been exposed to anthrax and were worried over it and wanted to go to the hospital. Wow. I participated so. in, a, uh, in a drill, in a simulation. I was uh, uh, trained as a, a community emergency response team member, CERT. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yep. And uh, took a, a couple days' worth of classes and learned how to you know, bandage people and do a two-person carry and um, put out a fire with a fire extinguisher, a lot of helpful things that I learned in the class. And as um, at the culmination of the class, we were invited to participate in a uh, simulation at the Pepsi Center here in Denver. And they brought in the actors, and um, they they had the um, moulage, they call it, where they look like they've got broken bones and they're bloodied and, you know, unconscious and, you know, can't walk and... So we were all invited to participate in that, and I discovered that, for me, 
Um, I probably, if I'm going to be involved in a critical incident, I need to be far away on the perimeter handing out water bottles to the people who are going in to the critical incident. It can be extremely draining and can take a toll. And so um, as, as uh, kind of uh, crazy as it sounds for the actors in that type of simulation to even worry if they've been exposed, um, it really is a, a, a stressful um, type of experience to be involved even in a simulated critical incident, let alone the real thing. Uh, when we come back, uh, Tom, I want to talk with you about critical incident stress management. And that's uh, what you're involved in as a, as a provider as well as an instructor. So when we have something like a terror attack, uh, when we have a disaster, even a natural disaster as you've described some of the examples, how do we help people uh, recover? How do we help them get through that immediate um, uh, aftermath? How do we uh, keep an eye on them? How do we get them the help that they need so they can be resilient and uh, we can refer them to help if they are showing signs of PTSD? I'm talking with Tom Greenhall, and he's an expert in terrorism and critical incident stress management. We'll be back with Tom after these, these words. Wherever I choose to go, it won't take me far. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com slash retreat. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for coming back with me. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and this is Living Well with Dr. Peg. And I've been speaking with Tom Greenhall, retired police lieutenant and paramedic and expert on terrorism and critical incident stress management. If you'd like to connect with Tom Greenhall or share this interview with a friend, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And you can join the conversation or ask Tom a question about the psychological impact of terrorism or critical incident stress management, or if you're a first responder or family member of a first responder and want to give your insights into uh, the effects of a critical incident, give us a call. We're at 
5600. And thanks so much again, Tom. Uh, you have so much expertise, so much experience. I appreciate you being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and so you were at uh, the Boston Marathon um, incident, uh, terror attack, um, critical incident in the aftermath. Uh, let's talk about um, critical incident stress management. It goes by CISM as the acronym. Um, and what is that and what role does uh, CISM play in recovery from a critical incident, for example, like the Boston Marathon bombing? Critical incident stress management is a continuum of services it was originally designed by a doctor named Jeff Mitchell, and then he partnered with Dr. Joy Jeveli back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And his goal at the time was to come up with a model to serve first responders who had to go and be a witness to these types of events. During that time, he developed a model called debriefing and an assortment of others that were tools in our toolbox to manage these events before an incident, during an incident and after an incident. Originally designed for the first responder community, they've now been adapted in many ways to help non-first responders to work with us through varying alterations of the model, but the core is the same. Mm -hmm. And it's really about helping people move to their new normal and try to re help remove some of the barriers to that accomplishment. It's not therapy. It's not discussing what you did wrong or right. It's not about that. It's about your psychological and emotional experience of an event and getting a, giving you an opportunity to share that typically with peers. You know, or, and sometimes it's in an individual setting. But there's an assortment of ways that we can help facilitate that, and that's really what it's all about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had Dr. Everly to... on, on the show before, and um, he talked about what he calls psychological body armor and trying to help people build a resistance before a critical incident occurs and certainly to, to bounce back and be resilient in the aftermath. Um, and so uh, th this has evolved over time, but it's, it's such an um, evidence-based practice that makes all the difference uh, for survivors. Yes, and George is a friend of mine. We actually, I actually serve as a faculty member with the group East out of the Resilient Science Institute in Maryland. And it's all about trying to keep people resilient in these types of events and help them bounce back, so to speak. So it's another aspect of the CSM model, if you will, of that comprehensive approach to psychological health for people. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about kind of the, the phases of a disaster and the role of CISM in moving people through those phases and, and helping them have a good outcome on the other side. Um, I learned in your class about uh, the phases of the disaster, heroism, honeymoon, disillusionment, and reconstruction. Can you talk about those and how CISM plays a role moving people through those phases? Sure. So this, at this point, has been identified um, about eight phases. So the first one is pre-disaster. And in that case, it's basically knowing that someday this could happen. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to work on that? That's going to be our threat phase is basically what we're talking about here. And we sit there and identify what could happen, and then we need to prepare for that. So we find in terms of a CISM model, not only are we going to operationally prepare for it, so let's say we're thinking of a major snowstorm disaster where you're going to be without food and water and power maybe for three or four days. 
So pre-planning might be having food stock in place, batteries, generators, things like that. On the CSM model, though, it's about the psychological impact of that event. What can you expect to happen when it does happen? We call it pre-incident education. And that can be for anyone. You know, there's all different levels that we um, provide education for around that. The next phase is typically the warning phase where it's no longer, it might happen, but here it comes. It looks like it's going to happen. And here, uh, this is when people really up the game as far as being prepared. This is when, at least in the Northeast, and I know in Colorado, since they spend a lot of time out there, this is when you see everyone run into a Home Depot to buy generators and snow shovels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And milk and bread. (laughs) Exactly. Now it's like, it's for real. I have to go do something about it. And as I said earlier, as long as we have that warning, people can do pretty well. It's when we don't get the warning that it can throw people off a little bit. Mm -hmm. As the earthquake and the terrorist thing. So now after that, we go into the impact phase where whatever's going to happen has happened. It's begun. And here, people will do pretty well overall as long as we find there's something for them to look forward to. That's been the key. You'll see some physiological changes because now it's real. It's, it's happening. So you could have some body reactions as a result of this or stress reactions. But now I have to get through the event. So this is the hurricane that has just struck. We can't come out and do rescues right now. It just has to pass because it's too unsafe for people to go out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. After that, and it has passed, now we take a look at what they call the inventory phase. So it's basically the what the heck just happened and what's left, where am I at? And here, this is when people still are somewhat hopeful, and again, if there's a chance you know, to move forward through it, they tend to do better than if they feel hopeless. And that's a huge piece of how we manage getting through these types of things. And, Tom, often this is where we see the news media put the microphone in the person's face standing, you know, in the rubble, for example. And um, I've always been struck by how you'll see two people interviewed in the same disaster, and one is saying, you know, we've lost everything, even the dog was killed, but we'll rebuild. Um, We'll start over. We're just so glad to be alive. And then you'll see someone else interviewed standing, you know, three feet away from that first person, and they're, they've just broken down. They're crying. They're weeping. We've lost everything, even the dog. I don't know what we're going to do. And it sounds like what you're saying is that's, that's the critical phase of if they feel there's hope, there's something to look forward to, they can move through this with a better outcome uh, than someone who's feeling hopeless or just not quite seeing how they're going to make their way through it. Right, and that mindset of future orientation tracks through the rest of this because the other part of this inventory phase, they're just trying to figure out what the hell happened and where do they stand. Mm-hmm. You know, where is my family? Do I have a home, as you said? Uh, and the media is now involved, and sometimes they escalate the issue instead of toning it down. Mm-hmm. That can happen. Mm-hmm. The next phase we see is what we call the heroic phase, and here's when you see the best in people. You'll have people that maybe argue daily, but at this time of their lives, they're going to work together to get through whatever they have to get through. And this is really an important aspect of human nature because it's survival of the species is really what has come to the surface. What we see in disasters and terrorism, like they talk about looting, you see this a lot in uh, 
civil unrest, we don't see it here as much, at least at this initial phase. It might come later, but by and large at this point, people are working together to try to come out of the hole, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so this is when we really need people to manage themselves in terms of stress management. Because we're not ready to do heavy-duty psychological interventions. We'll do something perhaps known as psychological first aid, which is really about meeting basic needs of the moment. Mm-hmm. And this it's is why the, the pre-incident um, preparation is going to be so helpful to know this is what could happen this, these are common reactions. Here are some things you can do to help yourself and help those around you that if you've thought that through in advance, it sounds like you'd probably do a little bit better in this heroic phase in terms of self-care and, and stress management. Yeah, we make plans for many aspects of our life. You know, what's going to happen if this occurs? But people seldom think in terms of this mm-hmm. pre-planning. Um, the next phase is the honeymoon phase. And here is like the height of community optimism and cohesion, that they realize we've survived it, we're coming together, it feels like it's behind us, it could have been worse, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now is when you get a lot of media coverage of VIPs and such coming. So in the 9-11 when you saw the president come out and stand atop the pile with the bullhorn, President Bush, those types of things. Mm-hmm. That's what will occur around here. So the, the facts of what have happened are starting to settle in, but the long-term implication, we're not quite there yet. I'm just happy to be alive is the best way I can describe this. And so after that, we move over to now what we call disillusionment. And this can happen in the course of days where we went from that, everything's going to be great, we're going to get through it, we did get through it, to reality hits. And so now adrenaline's coming down, I'm tired. I'm looking around every day at the foundation that used to be my house. I know that I've lost family members. So now we'll see a lot of the symptoms start to pop up in this area of the sleeplessness, the irritability, those types of things. This is also when people get really frustrated because they reach out maybe to a federal agency for assistance, but now the paperwork has to be done. Mm. And there's delays. And so people are challenged by that. They're like, I just went through this, just help me. I don't have time to wait three weeks for this paperwork to process. So that's not uncommon to see, and that can last quite a while. The the last phase is the reconstruction phase. In here, this can take years to happen. So this might be the case of, as an example, we had a major flood, homes lost, and it's going to take us quite a while to rebuild that community. What we see here is... As long as there's that group cohesion again, future orientation, there's a thing called post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we see that occur at this phase, where they're actually stronger than they were before the incident. It's not for all. You know, some people have challenges as a result of the incident and need more support of varying types. But many will come back and say, we made it. You see our, as an example, in the marathon bombing, um, I wasn't there at the scene of the bombing. I came in afterwards to assist the support of those there. But you right away was coined the term Boston Strong. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's that whole piece of we're going to get through it. We're going to create a mantra around it. And that still carries. And I, it was interesting because I watched the incident in Toronto this week. And right away they put out Toronto Strong. So it caught on 
around the country in different places. Mm-hmm. So people are much more resilient than people give them credit for. They just need to be sometimes guided. They instinctively know how to help each other in the time, but then in the long term, just some support, social network, those types of things. And in today's world, that can be a challenge because for many, their social support network is internet-based. Okay, yeah, not face-to-face, in person, real arms right. around you. Yep, so everybody's on Facebook or something to that, like for the social network, but without power, that's gone. And that's wow. a huge piece of managing these types of events. Mm-hmm. So CISM, Critical Incident Stress Management, uh, is a process and and a model that comes in to support folks through these different phases. I'm talking with Tom Greenhall, and he is a retired police lieutenant, paramedic, firefighter, expert on terrorism and critical incident stress management. Again, if you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for Tom, give us a call at 303-477-5600. Now, Tom, you said that CISM was originally developed to support first responders. So talk about how uh, the process for them is is could can be different because um, I imagine that again in a in a incident like um, the 9/11 attacks that was very prolonged uh, a huge loss of life uh, for first responders in fact I lost several of my high school classmates having grown up in New York who were NYPD and NYFD uh, I've been to the memorial in New York City as well as even there's a firefighter firefighter memorial here in Colorado Springs. Um, so a huge loss of life for first responders. Talk about uh, how how the progression through these stages um, may be different or if these stages even apply for the first responders. Uh, it does to some aspect. The thing with the first responder community, they take an oath to serve the public, and they do so at risk of their own life. And I've always told people, you know, they don't realize when they meet uh, EMS worker, dispatch, a firefighter, uh, law enforcement personnel, hospital personnel, they're willing to give their life for you. That's what they signed up for. But we don't talk about it. We all know it's in, it's there, it's in the background, but it's not supposed to happen today. And when these events occur, it brings what could be into a, it is. And in some levels for the first responder community, a lot of times there's a sense of somehow we failed at that. It may have nothing to do with what we've done or not done. It's just the event itself. And so when we lose one of our own, as you described at 9-11, there's a high level of, and it comes, I believe, sometimes from the military, you don't leave anyone behind. Mm. And so we're going to find those people and bring them home, so to speak, and try to circle the wagons and work through that. The CSM model was designed to basically try to help accelerate the recovery process. And so the model as designed is to bring in peers people that have been through something similar that have survived it. You can just sit and have a conversation and go, yeah, basically I went through something like this. It's not exactly the same because it never can be. But given that information, I got through it, and I think you can too. And it's just showing that there is a path that can be followed. Mm-hmm. And how effective, how successful is, is this model? For um, first in, my, in my experience, it's been very successful. Um, I've watched people over the years that come in very down, for lack of a better word, and depending on the nature of the intervention, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's a couple hours, come out in a much better place. It's not a panacea, 
-hmm. one intervention doesn't fix everything all the time. And so sometimes it takes multiple times through and using various tools to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So part of the CSM, we actually have a residential component for people if that's what's needed or, you know, a clinical component. Okay, to refer them for further support. Correct, because the model is peer-driven, clinically guided, meaning the peers will talk to the peers, but there's a clinical oversight to make sure that the peers stay on track. And if we need the extra help, we can say, can you help me out? This is above my pay grade, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, we only have um, about two minutes left. Um, I'm going to give you a big question to answer here. Uh, How do we defeat terrorism. Uh, you, you talked about this in our class. It's actually how we ended our class that I took with you at the International Critical Incident Stress uh, Foundation. Um, what are some of the kind of the, the give and take of, of how we deal with this and how we can um, kind of uh, be resilient in the face of an actual terror attack? So the first thing that we utilize is the concept of the power of an idea. And one of the things that we talk about, the person helped me rewrite the program, Dr. Aiden Duggan from Massachusetts. Yeah. He's, a, he's lived through various events across countries over his years. And this is one of the things that we really wanted to put the message out on this was, it's not just the bombs and the bullets that are going to stop it. You have to have the strength to do that when you need to, but it has to be balanced with the non-violent approach to move it forward. And I think the most recent example, we're not sure how it's going to turn out yet, but you look at the recent threat over the past year of North Korea with nuclear missiles aimed at us. And the threat was, you do that, we're going to come at you with the physical retaliation. But there was also the sanctions in place, and now there's likelihood, at least as it appears, that we might be able to have a conversation and move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom, I'd love to have you back on and continue this conversation with you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on here and glad to help any way I can. All right. God bless you. My guest has been Tom Greenhall, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Pegg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.